0: Good morning, church. It's always a, a wonderful blessing to, uh, to be together, to worship together. And I know that, that was a long passage, uh, but we've been making our way through Hebrews uh, and unpacking what the Lord has done through His Son as He compares, or as the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to what the Lord has used before and establishing the name of the Lord. And in that regard, we all understand what it means to trust in a name. Uh, early on, you, you begin to learn what it means uh, uh, that someone's name begins to garner a certain reputation. You, you know early on who you can or cannot trust based off of their name. I've seen plenty of business cards for, uh, for car dealerships or uh, for plumbers or for heating and air conditioning uh, technicians that they'll put the little uh, ichthus, the Jesus fish, on their card. But you know that because of the name, uh, they're saying that they're Christian, but I can't trust them because of the name. There have been politicians that, before you even vote for them, you feel like you can or cannot trust them because their family name has a reputation of being trustworthy or untrustworthy. Students, for those of you that are in school, you know that there are certain teachers in your school that are going to dictate if you're going to have an amazing year or if this is going to be a grueling experience for the next several months because that teacher, their name has garnered a certain reputation. We understand what it means to trust in someone's name. <clears throat> whenever we're going to a, a new restaurant, or if you're going to to go car shopping, which is one of the few forms of torture on this earthly realm, uh, but whenever you're going into a new experience that you have not gone before, oftentimes you will ask someone. Uh, friends of yours, people that you know and trust, if they have done business with them before. Oh, you've been to that restaurant? What's it like? Oh, you've bought a car from that guy? What's, What's it like buying a car from that lot? Because regardless of what reviews or advertising might say, you trust the name of a friend of yours. You trust their experience, and you trust that because they have built that trust with you. That their, that their name will give a credible uh, review of that experience. And when we look at Hebrews 7, within the Christian context, we know very little about who this Melchizedek was. We don't often talk about Melchizedek in our Christian services. In fact, throughout Scripture, the only times that you see him are in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and right here in Hebrews. But in the Jewish culture, there was a lot of respect for Melchizedek because Abraham respected him. Abraham submitted himself to him and paid tithes to him. And so because of that, because Abraham submitted himself to him, Melchizedek's name had garnered a reputation of honor and respect within Jewish culture. And the author is saying to the Jewish audience that originally received this letter, Melchizedek, you know that name that you can trust? Well, Jesus' name is even better. Better. In fact, I would say that the the argument that the author is making, the author is telling us today that every Christian can find security in the work Christ accomplished. I'll say that one more time. That every Christian can find security in the work Christ accomplished. Because Jesus has accomplished far more than any other priest. Could ever do, thus making his name more trustworthy. And the author shows this in three ways. First, in verses 1 through 10, with a superior priest. The author shows us a superior priest in verses 1 through 10. Secondly, in verses 11 through 21, the weakness of the law. That's the weakness of the law in verses 11 through 21. And lastly, verses 22 through 28, the keeper of the covenant, the keeper of the covenant is in 22 through 28. And before I go any further, let us pray. (coughs) Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. God, we thank you for your word that it was not just written for believers generations ago, but it is living and active and speaks truth to us today. And so, God, I pray that You would pour out Your Spirit in this place, that You would speak to us through Your Word, that You would use a broken vessel like myself to communicate Your eternal gospel truth. Don't let this be my, my, a collection of my, my thoughts or, or, or my ideas, but God, let this be your life-changing gospel truth. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us through your spirit. We pray in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> All right, for a quick recap, just to catch everyone up to where we are in Hebrews, uh, the letter of Hebrews itself was written by an anonymous author. We don't know who wrote it but he was writing to a group of Hebrew Christians. They were Jewish believers who converted to the Christian faith. Uh, And it's a collection of little mini sermonettes uh, on how Jesus is better than what God has revealed in the past. In fact, fact, I've often used the quote from Donald Guthrie (coughs) that the past has given way to better things. So what God used and did in the past was good, but with the coming of His Son, it is now even better. And the author is unpacked uh, uh, by looking at the prophets and angels and the concept of Sabbath rest, uh, comparing Jesus to Moses and the priests. And in every single one of those circumstances and situations, Jesus accomplished more. And so in his first point, he compares Jesus to Melchizedek with a superior priest. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson. So if you would just bear with me for a moment. And uh, starting in in verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, originally, we... Like I said, Melchizedek is first seen in Genesis chapter 14. And at this point in, in redemptive historical narrative, Lot is living in Sodom. And when these, uh, these foreign kings come in and attack, they actually take Lot and his family and the, the survivors of, of Sodom. They take them captive and haul them off. And Abraham hears this and he takes the strong men of his family and chases after these kings. I mean, the boldness of, of this man who Abraham is not a king. He's not a ruler. But he says, someone from my family has been taken captive. I'm going to get a bunch of the strongest people in my family. We're going to go chase these guys down and get them back. And that's exactly what they do. They chase down the kings. They actually slaughter these foreign kings. And he, Abraham saves Lot and the rest of his family and the people of Sodom and brings them back. And so as they're coming back, they're greeted both by the king of Sodom and this, this priest Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's name itself, as the author says, means king of righteousness. For a quick Hebrew lesson, Melech means king and Sadiq means righteousness. And so by combining these two words together, Melchizedek is literally king of righteousness. And the name Salem itself, where, where Melchizedek is from, is a variation of the word shalom, meaning a holy rest. And so this city of Salem, the city itself, is meant to be a city of rest. And this high priest Melchizedek comes from this restful city as a high priest. And the author says he's without father, our mother, our genealogy. And we look at that and we're like, whoa, 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 wait. So he just showed up one day. And within an earthly context, he did have an earthly beginning. He did have a, a, a father and mother. He did eventually die at some point. But it is recorded nowhere within our scriptural context. And so as far as the reader is concerned, this high priest comes in out of nowhere, holy enough for Abram to honor him with tithe, and then just disappears into the sunset. And so for the, the reader's context, Melchizedek appears to have this, this sense of eternality that uh, he's coming in from nowhere. He, as far as we know, he's always been a priest. Whereas within the Levitical line of priests, the the priests in the nation of Israel, it was something that was carried on through the bloodline. It was a generational thing that it was carried on through the blood of Aaron. But Melchizedek, as far as the reader is concerned, no one placed him in that position and no one displaced him from that position. And so there's the appearance that he is a high priest forever. And so... Melchizedek is actually what theologians refer to as a type of Christ, as in that he is a a, a shadow representing something greater that is to come. And we'll get more into that a little bit later, but Melchizedek is not the standard, but he's setting the reader up for a greater high priest to come. And then the author picks up in verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had The promises. Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. In Numbers 18, the entire chapter lays out the the rules and the duties of the priests and the Levites. And it, it it's it's explained there how the the priestly tribe of Levi is supposed to collect tithes from the nation of Israel, from their own people, from their brothers, from their cousins. And yet Melchizedek, who's not tied to the nation of Israel whatsoever, which hasn't even come into existence yet, is holy enough for Abraham, the one who will receive the covenant promise from God. This Melchizedek is holy enough to receive tithe from him. And in verse 7, it is... Beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. The lesser cannot bless the greater. Someone who is lacking cannot bless someone who has. And so this Abraham who is looked at as this hero figure, the the father of the nation of Israel, being blessed by Melchizedek shows that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham because the greater blesses the lesser. And then in verse 8, in the, one who, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The tithes are received by mortal men. These are just normal men. Normal human beings like you and I. There is nothing holy or, or inherently righteous about them, but they have been set apart for this duty. And so as Abraham gives tithes and paid tithes to Melchizedek and his apparently eternal status, there's a sense that Levi, the the future tribe of Levi, uh, paid tithes because he, as the author says, he's in in Abraham's loins. He's in the the DNA of Abraham himself. That one day, this future tribe, this priestly line, Will come as a descendant of Abraham, and because he is in the DNA of Abraham himself, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Levi itself, is submitted to the high priest Melchizedek. The future priests that haven't even come yet attribute honor to Melchizedek, because he is a holy priest that, as far as the reader is concerned, has no beginning. And no end. And yet Melchizedek is not the greatest priest, but he's the shadow of the great priest yet to come. Because as, as unknown and as mysterious as Melchizedek is, as, as far as we can understand, he has no beginning and no end. He points at the greater priest to come as God came in the flesh as God Himself has eternally no beginning and no end. And the Old Testament is full of types of Christ that these men in the Old Testament, these these people that we see throughout the, the Old Testament Scriptures, don't just exist unto themselves, but point the reader to someone greater who is yet to come. Reading through Genesis and and seeing Adam and how all of creation come from the offspring of Adam, that all are in Adam, and as Adam has sinned and all of Adam's descendants are born into sin, Paul says later in Romans that Jesus is the second Adam and that all who follow him are in righteousness. Righteousness. We see Moses and Elijah as these great and powerful prophets leading the nation of Israel, and yet they themselves are pointing to a greater prophet yet to come. We see David and Solomon, these great kings leading the people, but yet their earthly reign was pointing toward a greater king yet to come. And here we see Melchizedek, this eternal priest that we do not know his beginning or his end, but he's actually pointing to a greater priest yet to come who truly does not have beginning or end. Because the Old Testament is not just this random collection of stories, but the Old Testament is a cohesive text that points to the coming of the true prophet, priest, and king. The one person who holds all three of those offices at one time in Jesus Christ. And as Melchizedek is a priest superior to the Levitical priest, he himself points us to Christ, the eternal priest over all. And as the author uses Melchizedek to point to Christ, he then goes on to point out the weakness of the law itself, picking up in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the, through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. If perfection... This is the argument he's making. If if perfection could come through the law itself, then why even need another priest? And the answer is because the law could never fully atone. Uh, we even... Uh, looked last week at how the the law itself could could cover sin, but it never made full atonement for sin. David, throughout the Psalms, even repeats this refrain that no one is righteous. No one is able to achieve a a perfect holiness on their own. And then Paul even repeats that in Romans 3, that no one is righteous, no one seeks after God. And then later in, in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes in Romans, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, being God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law itself was never intended to save. It doesn't have the power To save. And so, in order for salvation to come to the people, the law itself had to be dealt with. Picking up in verse 13 For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's not from this, uh, this bloodline of people who are supposed to be priests over the people. Jesus is actually from the tribe of Judah. And for those of you who know your Old Testament history, Judah is the tribe where rulers and kings came from. This is where David, this is the tribe of David that establishes leaders over God's people. It's not the tribe of Judah is not known for priestly duties. And so Jesus' bloodline or Jesus' priesthood does not come from a bloodline, but instead look at verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest. Jesus was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Jesus' priesthood didn't come from a bloodline, but because God put Him there. The author quotes Psalm 110 where the Lord is speaking and says, I have put you here in the order of Melchizedek. I have done this. Not because your blood has put you here. Not because your descendants have put you in this priestly role, but I have placed you here to rule and to serve in the order of Melchizedek. Because the law itself is powerless. It cannot save. Back in verse 19, uh, the author said that the law made nothing perfect. It does have a role. The law itself is very important. Uh, In fact, in many Reformed traditions, we often refer to the threefold use of the law. First is a a civil responsibility that the the law itself is used to restrain sin. It says, don't kill people, don't murder, don't steal. Those are, are valid forms of the use of the law that we say, no, there's a standard that says if you break this law that you have sinned. And the law is used to restrain sin itself. For the believer, it sets a standard of holy living, not just to keep the law, but for those who are are, are believers of God, for those who are followers of Christ, the law is helpful, and this is a standard for holy living, to, to honor God, to keep Him first, to honor the Sabbath, to honor your father and mother. These are holy forms of living. Not to earn God's favor, but because God's favor was given to you first. But also the law is important because it points out the need for a Savior. Because there is no way that you and I are able to perfectly keep the law. We can't do it. It, it's, it's It's not in our blood. We are born defiant and rebellious. Imagine looking in a mirror. You're about to to go to a a party, or perhaps you're 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 picking someone up for a date or you're going to a job interview. You're you're looking in the mirror because you are preparing for something coming up that is important to you. And you look in the mirror, and your hair is all disheveled, and you've got like ketchup and mustard coming out of the sides of your mouth, and you've got stains all over your clothes. And at that moment, you're presented with a choice. Will I change by what the mirror is reflecting back? Will I change according to what I see is wrong before me? And that is what the law does for you. It holds up a holy mirror to your soul and says, this is God's standard. Will you submit or not? Will you submit to the law of God or not? It can't save. It was never intended to save. It doesn't have the power to save. And in that regard, the law is weak but the law shows you your own weakness and that you cannot save yourself. As it reveals your own weakness, the law asks, what will you do? And so now after discussing Jesus as a superior priest and then the weakness of the law, the author gets to his third point, the keeper of the covenant. And verse 22 itself could actually serve as a summary statement of this chapter where the author says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Because Christ is the eternal priest that Melchizedek points you to. Because the law in itself could never save, the law, or because the law could never save, the Lord promised another priest who had the power to affect the law. Not that He abolished it. He didn't come to abolish it, but He came to fulfill it. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus' work was not about getting rid of the law. His work was about keeping it perfectly because you could not. Picking up in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Throughout the Old Testament uh, history, priests would come and go. They would be born, they would serve, they would die, and someone would replace them. But Christ is eternal. Not like Melchizedek in the concept of, well, we don't know his beginning or end, so we just assume that he's eternal, but he's eternal because he is God in the flesh. He, he being part of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he truly is eternal, that he has no beginning. And no end. And in that regard, He is eternally interceding on your behalf at the right hand of God the Father. That right now, He is at the right hand of God praying for you. Unlike earthly priests, Jesus did not need to sacrifice repeatedly. He had no sin of His own to atone for. Whereas the high priest would have to sacrifice to cleanse himself before he could go into the Holy of Holies, Jesus didn't have to do that because He was perfect and sinless. And yet He took your sin upon Himself and nailed it to the cross with Himself. That there was one sacrifice for all time to cover every sin, every believer for eternity. That your sin died on the cross with Christ. And when He rose again, that His victory was fulfilled. Because Jesus just didn't take your sin, but He gave you His righteousness. You who were once an enemy of God are now a child of God. And He took your place as your substitute and gives you His victory. In 1999, uh, there was a a Christian band by the name of Audio Adrenaline, and they were one of my favorite bands of all time, and I've I've gotten to meet them a couple of times, which was like meeting a, a hero of mine, part of the reason why I started playing music and all this stuff, but they had an album called Underdog, and on it there was a song titled Underdog. And the second verse says this, I'm in this race to win a prize. The odds are against me. The world has plans for my demise, but what they don't see is that the winner is not judged by his small size, but by the substitute he picks to run the race. And mine's already won. Do you realize that? The Christian faith is not a a belief system of, man, I really hope this works out. The Christian faith is a belief that you are clothed in righteous victory that has already been obtained. The work has already been done. Your substitute has already won. And if verse 22 is the summary statement of this chapter, then verse 28 is the promise of that summary statement. The author says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, and here's your promise, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus isn't going before you as a priest that's going to have to continually be making sacrifice because I can't believe he's screwed up again. But his one sacrifice... Covers you eternally; that He lives eternally and is eternally praying for you, interceding on your behalf before the Father. You are standing in the victory of the Son who has been made perfect forever, and you can find peace in that. You find security in that because you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to. Uh, Keep trying so hard. Stop trying so hard. Find rest. You don't have to go. Uh, and, and I know we don't have a church building, and we don't have like thirty different programs going on a week. But in the concept that you don't have to keep doing things to try to earn God's favor. You don't have to go to every Bible study or every outing that we have, hoping that well, if I if if I go to the Bible study and church and you know. If, if I, maybe I need to go to the chili cook-off too and maybe God will love me a little bit more. You cannot earn God's favor, so stop trying. You don't have to live in anxiety because you were already called righteous and you are being made perfect. You can find security because you can't mess it up. Because your faith doesn't depend on you but I'm the substitute who has already conquered death and sin. And in that regard, you can't screw up someone else's salvation. I've talked with people who are terrified to share the gospel because, well, what if I don't say the right things? Or what if I I forget how to pray the prayer? And, And what if they're not truly saved because I messed it up? You can't mess it up. You go and you share what the Lord has shown you And trust that He is the one who is faithful to be victorious. Let God do the work that He has already won. Go and tell them. And then trust God to work. And then lastly, you can find security because it's forever. It's eternal. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Christian, rest and be secure that you are in the hands of a God who will not let you go. And so now I have to challenge you. In light of everything that we've read and looked at, Will you continue trusting in your own efforts, trying to be good enough and endlessly seeking approval by trying to keep a law that could never save you? Or, will you trust the true eternal priest who has been placed by God not to destroy the law, but to keep it perfectly? Keeping the covenant as your victorious substitute. Today, will you choose to rest in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. God, we thank you for your goodness to us because our faith is something that we could never earn. We could never be good enough. We could never keep the law enough. But God, in your favor and in your goodness to us, you sent your son to take our place as our substitute, and you loved us first. God, let us find rest in that. Let us find our security in that, that we don't have to earn or keep your love. But through Jesus, you gave it at the cost of his blood, but you gave it freely. You call us your children. You call us your own. You call us righteous and holy, and you are making us perfect. And so, God, let us find our rest and our strength and our hope and our eternal security resting in Jesus Christ alone. And we pray all of this in his holy name. Amen.